You're listening to the Reversing Climate Change podcast by the team at Nori, the carbon removal marketplace. This is a show about the innovators and entrepreneurs developing solutions to climate change. Hello and welcome to the Reversing Climate Change podcast with Nori. I'm Ross Kenyon. I'm one of the co-founders of Nori and the creative editor there. Today I have with me guests who we've been trying to coordinate with for a long time. It just has not happened. We've had experiments on our end that have taken forever, bearing the lead a little bit here. But with me, Jada Dormeyer, here from Supply at Nori. Hey, Jada. Hi, Ross. It's good to be here with you guys. I'm, I'm happy to have you. You were such a huge help because we got this kiln from our guests for making biochar. And how many attempts did it take? And this is nothing against the kiln. I think this is our, and mostly my failure, but. <laughs> yeah, the kiln is very cool, but we failed three times. And then you were having a bird issue, Ross, the last time that we were going to try again. And so I took the kiln home and made biochar by myself and I was successful. So it's been definitely a process, but very fun. Having a bird issue, it's a great excuse <laughs> for delaying a podcast. If you want the story, I can link back to, I told Siobhan this story about having crow fledglings in my yard. So all the adult crows were attacking us and dive bombing us when we would go about our business. So I had to cancel one of the last biochar makings because of it. But thanks for picking up the slack there and saving me, Jada. Yeah, no worries. Yeah. I love fire. I have to say, I love fire. So being a little bit of a pyro made it even more fun. <laughs> That's cool. I'm glad I was able to do that for you. Well, <laughs> we should introduce our guests here who are sitting patiently. They're from Earthly Biochar in the UK. They're the founders of it, Connor Lascelles and Lottie Hawkins. Hello, you both. Hello. How did this get going? I know there's a lot of biochar people and they're often quite passionate about it. How did you look at this field and say, this is where I want to make my mark. This is what I want to do. Yeah, it's quite an interesting origins, really. So I've always thought I have had like an ability to solve problems and come up with ideas. So I thought, oh, maybe I should be an entrepreneur. And then when I turned 17, I learned about climate change. And I thought, okay, how can I combine the, the two? This is most pressing, in my opinion, the most pressing problem of our time. So I thought I can't go and start another business non-climate related. I have to do it now while the time is urgent. So I decided to study product design. And during my final year of my product design degree, I had to pick a problem and solve that problem with a product solution. And I went to my university open day, sort of society open day, where you go and join clubs. And I got talking to someone who ran a permaculture society. And he was actually studying biochar. And when he found out that I uh, was a product designer, he asked me to build him a biochar kiln so that he didn't have to keep buying it uh, so that he could make it at home for his tests. And then when I went home and I Googled what biochar was, I learned that it was carbon negative. And then I learned that not only that, it has all these other co-benefits in agriculture and other, other industries. So I thought, wow, this is quite exciting. So I Googled biochar kiln for sale, UK, and nothing came up. So I went to my tutor and I nothing? said, hey, I've got That's this. It? It, was, it was just totally blue sky there? There was no product that you could buy where you just load up your feedstock and make biochar in an easy way. Yeah, so I went to my tutor and I said, oh, there's this thing about biochar. I don't really know much about it. I'm not sure about it. Well, what do you think? She's like, yep, do it. No one's done anything like that before. So I ended up doing my risking my degree on this project and 
and it was the best risk I've ever taken and ended up doing really well in my degree and getting voted the project you wish you would have had. So what what I realized was is that if you wanted to make biochar, you had to build your own kiln. And a lot of people don't have the tools or the skills necessary to do that. So just like if you want to have a pizza oven, you have to build your pizza oven or you buy a pizza oven. But there was no nothing to buy for biochar. So I thought, how can I make biochar more accessible for those wanting to make it? So that was the the problem that we set out to solve. Where did you come into this mix, Lottie? Well, I was the person that was listening to Connor banging on about it over dinner for about two years straight. <laughs> and at the time, I was working for an Australian startup. And I remember Connor was finishing his final year project and exhibiting it in London and we got some interest. People actually wanted to buy it, although at the time it was just a prototype on a on a stand. And I think we both similarly had the same kind of values and visions of the future. I'd worked for myself for a while, I'd worked in other startups. I'd always worked in kind of eco, kind of sustainable industries. I did a molecular biology degree, so it felt like the timing was right. We applied for an accelerator program and when we got that, that's when both me and Connor were like, okay, yeah, this is a business now. We've got something that we can run with. Awesome. God, and we just kept getting, I've had this kiln for, I think we were one of the first buyers of the kiln. And when even was it? I can't even remember. Surely it's greater than a year. Yeah. Close to two years, maybe. Oh, no. This is the longest running, like the lead time on this show is definitely the longest of any. (laughs) Like hoping there's not gonna be technical difficulties. It's gonna the audio gets lost. And you say, okay, take us another three months to schedule. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, I remember Ross. I think I don't know who contacted each other first, but I remember being aware of Norway, and then I was meaning to contact you, and then I think you messaged us on Instagram, and I remember being like at a pub with with Lottie having dinner, and I was like, oh look, Norway, they've just sent us a message. They're interested in our kiln. I think that was how I went. Oh, nice. I think Annalie Levin introduced us originally. Oh, right. Is that yes, yeah. that's right. And she's now over there working yeah. on her interesting pub idea. I need to have her back on to update when she's ready. I caught up with her recently though. But yeah, we went to visit her three or four months ago, actually. Yeah. It's wow. a really yeah, good she time. has a kiln as well. Yeah, didn't she want like multiple kilns working at all times, generating like outdoor drinking heat? <laughs> and then turning it into a garden <laughs> goes back into the garden and yeah uh, yeah. yeah she was looking there from the perspective of using the waste heat so as you're making biochar you've got around 500 degrees celsius of heat for about just over an hour and you know we sell cooking we have a, include a cooking grate that sits on the top so you can just put like pots and pans or you can just stick a wok right in the middle and cook your stir fry but yeah she was looking at trying to brew beer with it and use some of that waste heat to to actually provide the heat in the brewing system. So we haven't checked in on her in the last couple of months. So, but hopefully she's making some small batches with our kiln. That's very cool. That could be one of our next experiments too. <laughs> Combining like multiple complex hobbies in a row. I think I'm, I think we're both too tired for that. Good oh. luck, Annalie. We'll celebrate you from afar. Why don't we back up a little bit? Imagine someone doesn't know what biochar is. How do you explain it? Why is it important? Why does it belong on a podcast called Reversing Climate Change? So biochar is is kind of a type of charcoal made at a higher temperature than your usual lumpwood barbecue charcoal. So 
your barbecue charcoal is made at about 400 degrees Celsius. And that's because you want some of that smokiness still left in the for the to impart the flavor on your food. But with biochar, it's made at between 600 and 800 and sometimes even larger than that. And what that does is it unclogs the pores that are present in the in the structure. So if you cut a tree and you look at it under a microscope, you'll see all these little holes. And those holes are responsible for bringing water up and down the, the tree. And when you carbonize that, you actually are retaining that porous structure. The reason why it's carbon negative is, let's take forestry for an example. If a tree is used in a sawmill, around half of that tree ends up as waste. And that waste is usually burnt for energy to, to kiln dry. And that's the carbon cycle. The tree took it out of the air. We then burn that tree for energy, and then that goes back into the atmosphere again. But what biochar is, is, is we're heating in the absence of oxygen. So it's not a full combustion process. It's kind of like a half combustion. So what we do is you take an organic matter, wood, you apply heat and air, and then at one at a certain time, you restrict the air. And what that does is it prevents 50, roughly 50% of the carbon, the original carbon content of that wood, from releasing as CO2. And then that remaining carbon is, when it's made at a higher temperature, it forms this crystalline structure, which is almost impossible for microbes to break it down in the soil. So it's effectively removed from the carbon cycle. And the only way to get that carbon back into the atmosphere again is to burn that. And to avoid that happening, we use it as a soil amendment. So blending it into your compost. And when you do that, it, it adds value in another way. So because of its porous structure, it holds on to nutrients and, and water really effectively. So there's the research says that you can save about 20 to 40 percent of your water and fertilizer requirements by mixing biochar into your soil mix at a rate of 10 percent by volume. So one part biochar, 10 parts soil. And on top of reducing the water and fertilizer requirements, it's actually increasing the yield and boosting the plant's health. There are many different mechanisms that it does that, and maybe Lottie can, can delve into those. But one of the main ones is that these, these pores become habitats for the beneficial microbes in your soil, and they go and hide in these pores, and they escape from their predators, and they get bigger and they get stronger. And the more microbes you have, the more nutrients is going to your plants. So this, in combination with a couple of other mechanisms in the soil, is probably why biochar has shown to increase the productivity of plants. Biochar, in my opinion, is one of the most immediate forms and accessible forms of carbon capture and storage, which is definitely why it belongs on this podcast. And I think that a really good way for people to visualise it is essentially when we make biochar, we use a term called pyrolysis. And all we're doing is taking the carbon that plants and biomass have sequestered from the atmosphere and just putting a stop on that, that carbon clock and like stopping it decaying. So by turning it into biochar, it becomes a durable form of carbon that you can hold. So biochar is 90% carbon. It's black and has small particle size. And by adding it to soils, like Connor mentioned, you can improve the soil quality and the yields of your kind of growing operations. But there are other markets that biochar can go into as well. And it's recognized internationally. It's been in the IPCC reports and it's in the UK's net zero strategy as a method to capture carbon at scale. So it's pretty cool. So if I dug up biochar that I had put in my soil, would it not be, it would never be decomposed? Correct. 
So when biochar goes into the soil, it's, in, it's an inert form of carbon. So you have different types of carbon in soil. And like organic matter, when we talk about that, we're talking about labile carbon that can travel through the carbon cycle. But biochar is inert. It's not going to break down. The bugs can't even break it down. So if you dug it up, it'll still be there. And that actually links to a really cool story about how biochar was discovered in the Amazon rainforests. And the oldest piece of biochar has been carbon dated to 4,000 years old. But because no one's existed for that long, we can't tell how much is degraded over that time scale. But we can confidently say in the research that biochar isn't a, on a centennial scale. So up to a thousand years, we're pretty confident the same amount of carbon will be there if you dig it up. Very cool. So can you tell us the process of making it with your guys' specific kiln? Yeah, sure. So when I was designing the kiln, I... Luckily, there's a massive community of DIY biochar makers. So I was reviewing all of the ways that people were making biochar and trying to work out which ones worked, which ones were the safest, which ones were the least likely to go wrong. There's one way of making biochar called a retort method. And this isn't what we use in our kiln, but essentially you've got a like an oil drum with one outlet for gas and you're heating that oil drum. You've, you fill that with, your, with wood scraps, wood chips uh, or logs. And you're heating that drum from beneath and that is heating up the wood and then the wood at certain temperatures starts to release smoke and smoke is mostly methane and hydrogen which is highly flammable and obviously methane we know is you know 25 times more potent than co2 as a greenhouse gas so one of the key priorities for for us when we design this is let's not create more harm than good we need to make sure that that methane is reacting with oxygen to form co2 and like i said People think, oh, how can burning something be carbon negative? Well, we're releasing 50% of the carbon just to turn the remaining 50% into something which won't biodegrade. So the one that the method that we use is called a top lit updraft. So TLUD. If you type in TLUD in biochar into YouTube, you'll find all these different oil drum stacking mechanisms. But essentially the way it works is we have a cylinder, which we call the burn chamber. And at the bottom of that cylinder is a perforated plate, so holes that let air in. At the top of the cylinder, around the edge of the top, we have more holes and they let in more air. So what we do is we fill up the burn chamber all the way to just below those secondary air holes, what we call them. What we do is we then put the, the chimney on, the thing that provides a bit of an updraft, and we light that from the top. So usually with a fire, you sort of start small and add to it. But this is this is completely the other way around. So we're filling it all the way up and then lighting it from the top. And what happens is, is that because the chimney is providing an updraft, air is being pulled in from the base. It rises through the feedstock, mainly wood chip. It hits the fire at the top. That oxygen is used up and methane and hydrogen is released. That methane and hydrogen, which is smoke, then mixes with air coming in through the secondary air holes. And there's a thing called the fire triangle, where if you have enough air, fuel and heat, you have fire. So the air comes in through the secondary air holes. The fuel is the smoke. Because we've lit it, there's enough heat. And then if we've got the right balance, you can then burn the smoke. So this looks like a bit of a gas hob. We have some photos on our Instagram where when the smoke is being burnt, it looks like a like a cooking ring of gas burning so what happens is is as the air is rising through to the fire the fire moves downwards towards the air and as it moves down 
it leaves a layer of charcoal behind. So in order for charcoal not to turn into ash, it needs to be heated in a low oxygen environment. And because there's only one route for the air, the air has to go through the bottom, through the feedstock to the fire. And then as soon as it hits the fire, it's used up in the fire so that everything above the fire is then low oxygen. And because hot air rises, it's like having a hot air dryer blowing up the top, which means that wind can't counterbalance that and come in from the top and start exposing your charcoal to oxygen. So as it's progressing downwards, you have this pyrolysis zone, this low oxygen zone, which is moving down. And when that low oxygen zone reaches the, well, when all your feedstock is turned into charcoal, biochar, then that's when the flame changes color. And at that point is when you need to stop the process. So wood burns twice from wood to charcoal and from charcoal to ash. In the first stage, the fuel is, is methane and hydrogen, and that burns an orange flame. So when you see an orange flame, you think, okay, that's that's the first bit going on. When you start to see that orange flame turn a bit blue, that means that your charcoal is now actually burning. Charcoal burns with carbon monoxide as a fuel, and that burns a lot hotter, and it burns a blue flame. So that carbon monoxide is reacting with the oxygen to form CO2, and you don't really want to be burning your, your charcoal. So the way to tell when to finish the process is to look at the color and the size of the flame. So once you're confident that it's mostly blue and you've taken a look at the time and it's roughly about just over an hour, it, it's time to quench the fire. So we use water to put the fire out. One of the reasons is, is because it's the safest way. It means that you don't have to starve it from oxygen and then hopefully that you come back the next day and you don't have a pile of ash. You, you hope that you've got your biochar sort of retained. But that we don't like that because sometimes, you know, we don't really want to sell a product that people are going to, you know, leave unattended. So we use water to quench it and it has secondary benefits, but to using water. So when you use water, you create a steam and then that steam helps flush out those pores. And then the, that increases the surface area, increases its absorption abilities. So once you've got to the second stage, you've quenched it, you pour water, maybe like one or two watering cans worth, you stop hearing the hissing, you let it cool down for five minutes, you get your heat proof gloves on, you take the chimney off and then you lift out the burn chamber and then you tip that into a bucket or into a container where you've got all of your finished biochar. And if you're starting with wood chip, which is the best feedstock, the easiest one to use, then let's say your wood chip is about an inch your biochar will be about half an inch. It will sort of collapse in size a bit. And then depending on what you're using it for, like trees, for example, have larger roots. So some people say that larger biochar should be used with larger roots. So if you're using it for trees, you don't really need to crush it up. But if you're using it for you know, finer root plants, then we recommend getting a piece of wood or a sledgehammer or a spade and just crushing it up. And what you're doing is further expanding the surface area. And we always recommend just adding a little bit more water, even though it's in this bucket, just, just in case there's no harm in adding more water. That's basically the process. And yeah, as, as you're doing it, if you, if you do it right, you've got dry feedstock and you've got the right sized feedstock, which ideally is wood chip, then you're not having any smoke. And that makes it a lot more pleasant to be around. You're mm -hmm. not going to be annoying your neighbors. And like I said, as, as you're burning it, you've got about, 500 degrees celsius worth of heat so we have videos on our instagram where we put a wok on the top and we're making a stir fry 
and you know the possibilities are endless for what you want to cook. Jada, does this help us understand where we went wrong? <laughs> yeah. <What? laughs> which parts, which steps of these do you think we misstepped on? <laughs> well, first, we didn't, we're, we live in Seattle, so it's a really rainy area. So the woodstock that we were getting was wet every single time, and we thought that it was dry enough. We didn't even so think it was, was, we didn't even smoke. think it was that wet. We didn't think it was just damp. So there was smoke. There was people walking by that were like, what are you doing? There was smoke. So that was our first mistake. When I did it, I actually just bought smoker chips. So that helped. They were all the same size and they were already dry. But your instructions say too to stop if there's smoke. So a couple of the times we were like, we'll quit. And then one time we did think, well, maybe it'll just stop smoking, which it did. But oh, no way. I'm impressed. How did you manage that? Most of the time it turns into a smoke machine and best advice, put it out and start again. You just yeah. So that time we went to the very end, but it was just ashes at the bottom. But I feel like the most stressful part was figuring out when the flame was the right color. Over the last, since 2018, when we designed this, we've, we've started to realize that wood chip dry wood chip is by far the best feedstock and I wouldn't use anything else. When I do my demos, uh, I want it to go right, you know, especially if it's being filmed. I will I will go to a local tree surgeon and I will say, can I fill up a couple of bin bags full of wood chip? And they don't charge me for it because they have to pay to get rid of it. I look for the driest piles and usually do it in the summer. But if it still needs drying, I lay out some tarpaulins on my garden or driveway and i'll just let that wood dry as best as it can just sit in it whatever one day and then once it is dry i'll then put it back in the bin bags and then store that as dry feedstock ready to use obviously if you have your own feedstock that you can generate so if you're pruning you're doing agroforestry then you can manage your feedstock like that if you, if you put it build a little shelter for it you can let it naturally dry over time I think I sent you this guide, but with with all the kilns that we sell, oh, we've studied we sell this, this so 12. closely, Connor. Yeah. We know every word basically. Like we're also, pretty, we, yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. To uh, help with seeing the flame, it's really good to set a timer because if you're just stood there watching a the flame, I don't know about you, I get a bit mesmerized. I don't really notice the color changing straight away. Whereas if you set a timer and you run for like 45 minutes, that's when you want to start looking. And then around about the hour mark, you should see not just the color changing, but the size of the flame should change as well. So once the wood is converted to biochar in that process, you're going to have a bit of a rocket fuel going on and flame. Whereas after that, it should actually reduce a little bit in size and that's when it changes color as well. So just look out for that around about the hour mark, if you can. There's this sort of permaculture, no dig, no till gardening guru called Charles Dowding. I've always been a fan of his and we met him at his gardening exhibition. We just got talking and he ended up buying one of our kilns and wanting to support us. So we now have a video about half an hour long on his channel where I go through the whole process. So I should have sent you that before, but if anyone who's <laughs> listening, if if you just go onto Charles, type into YouTube, Charles Dowding, and then type in charcoal. He doesn't call it biochar. He's sort of in the title, it says charcoal. So that's how you'll find it. 
but you'll you'll see and everything will make a lot more sense. <laughs> well, it sounds like our problem was almost certainly that of our feedstock choice. I don't think it was a problem of, of design with the kiln or it sounds like user error and of living in Seattle more than anything else. And also we know that you're buying wood chips that are intended for a smoker, probably not the the best way to go about your business, obviously turning waste into biochar value is the way to do it. But mm. we just tried. Yeah, I mean, we just, we just gave up on it. We we're like, we got to, we got to make some <laughs> damn biochar. We will do anything necessary to walk away from this a success. Did you no, try definitely. cooking on it? Oh, sorry, Connor. I was just going to ask, did you try cooking on it as you're making anything? Look, there's already too much writing on this to introduce a walk into the mix. I think that would have been more than anyone could have handled. But next time, now that we're a little more confident mm-hmm. and we know where we had made a mistake, I think next time I might try to introduce some cooking into the mix. Yeah, mm-hmm. we, we realized that feedstock is the hardest thing to get right with this. We've done lots of trial and error. And I honestly, if you can get hold of dry wood chip, then it's, it's gold. Um, and if you don't have a tree surgeon nearby, which would be surprising, your power companies will have to go and cut trees so that they don't interfere with with the uh, the power lines, and they will give you as much as you like. If you have a driveway, they will actually dump a whole truck for free on your drive. We also got friendly with a this company who they sell biomass fuel, but rather than cutting down Canadian old growth forests, pelletizing it and sending it over to be burned, they take local land. They work with local landowners after storms. So if a big tree falls down a storm. They collect that, dry it naturally, and then chip it and then store it in a barn. And that is still waste wood that is processed for combustion. So it's at the right moisture content. And I've got, you know, 15 bin bags full of that in my garage, just ready for my demo. So yeah, feedstock is a big challenge, but we we try to sort of help people combat that with with our guide of these videos and our education. And we're about to start a sort of Facebook group where people can start sharing tips. So hopefully we'll all manage together. The idea that you could contact a utility or a city government and they would do something like this makes it sound like you live in Mary Poppins and you have like a constable and and like, does this sound totally, does this sound like this would exist in Seattle, Jada? Yeah. No, not at all. <laughs> maybe it does. Maybe it does. Maybe I'm just like over overly Anglophilic here and it sounds like you live in the Shire and maybe you do. Do you live yeah, in the Shire? Do. Is it easier yeah. in that way? Okay. Yeah. No, I literally do. I'm from Wiltshire. Shire's in the name. <laughs> there, you there you go. When you're choosing feedstock, you think, obviously, some people are looking at biochar from purely a plant perspective. So they don't care about the smoke. They don't care about the carbon. They just know it's worked in the soil. So they have different priorities. And, you know, obviously, we recommend people to care about those things, but can't control it. Whereas there are other people like us who are prioritizing carbon, and that is the reason why we got into this. So you can go to a sustainable firewood producer and get kindling. So this is the, the smallest bit bit they do. The problem with that is, is that you can't just pour it in like wood chip. You have to actually sort of lay it in, kind of like lay it together and stack it together. Because what you don't want to do is create you want a homo- homogeneous feedstock, so you don't want big air pockets because the air needs to flow evenly at the same rate throughout the whole of the feedstock so that the fire can progress an even rate. Because what happens if, if you have too much air or a big air gap here and not enough air here is that where the air is, the fire will move a lot faster. So it will 
that that part of the fire will reach the end before this one has had the chance to to carbonize. So, yeah, that's that's another reason why wood chip is is golden. Can you use other things like my dad has cows? Could I use like manure or something like that? We have not experimented with that. We have had someone look at that from like a horse perspective, but it would have to be experimented. So you'd have to understand like, why well, does the manure actually produce smoke? Because you need enough to get the right balance of the fine triangle. You need enough fuel and obviously you need enough air. So does the, the manure allow the air to flow through okay. uh, unrestricted and obviously the moisture content as well. But technically you can make biochar out of anything made of carbon. The system that we've designed is extremely low tech and it's a little bit more sensitive but it's worth it worth it worth a try worth experimenting i think if i were you i would mix the manure with wood chips so that the wood starts to combust and it might get the whole thing going and get it hot enough for the manure to also carbonize but you might have a difference in the timing so maybe the wood might carbonize faster than the manure but um, manure makes very good biochar in like big industrial kilns. So it's something you could test out and let us know how it goes. I might smell as well. Like, I don't know what it would smell like. So yeah. I'm curious. <laughs> Maybe not in the city, but. <laughs> yeah, it's not and, a um, popular choice. I mean, obviously, some people would argue so manure better composted and the nutrients retained. Mm-hmm. And of course, like when you are making biochar from manure, you are getting rid of those those nutrients which plants could have access to. But although there is some that actually remain after you've carbonized, like for example, seaweed, you can actually desalinate seaweed and dry it. And then the biochar that you make from that has got lots more micronutrients than just wood biochar. So it's, I wouldn't rule it out, but I think it would be a case-by-case basis. Within the field of biochar, how many of the implements being made like your kiln are industrial scale? I've seen on Amazon and other places you can buy biochar, and I'm sure they're not being made by people in their backyard with like consumer grade products like the earthly kiln. Is this common? Is there a lot of activity like what you're doing out there? Are there more biochar kilns that are for backyard use or is most of biochar focused on larger scale operations at scale? Yeah, it is more focused on larger scale operations. As far as we know, there is no kiln like ours available. We do have like anywhere, not even not even in the states. It's not just a UK thing, but there are there are retorts. So there are other like methods of producing biochar. There's nothing for the price point that we have. There's nothing which is made to be consumer friendly. You can buy what's called an Exeter retort in the UK, which is a much larger scaled version. And that's about over 10,000 pounds. It makes about 150 kilograms of biochar per burn. So obviously a lot, much larger yield. But in terms of the domestic small scale stuff, we were probably the one of the first. And we have actually had a, a website copy us, use our photos, edit the photos and steal a blog and try and sell our kiln. I think it's a Chinese company from the address. And luckily we managed to to shut that down because they were using Shopify and so are we. And Shopify allow you to shut other people down if they're breaching your yeah, stealing your IP. So, so they, we know they, that would, would they like gonna... drop ship it though? Would they order it from you and sell it to someone else? Okay. No, no, it's different. They were gonna make a they were gonna make it, I imagine, themselves with their manufacturing capabilities out there. 
So we probably will expect people copying us. Like that's you know we're not we're not out there to sort of shut everyone down. This it's almost a good sign that people people want this and they recognize that people are going to want to buy this thing. If you're worth being copied, that's kind of good, right? Could be worse. Yeah, yeah. we've sold our kilns all around the world now. So we've sold them to people in Canada, America, Australia, New Zeeland. So what? I that's think that great. yeah, I know, right? I pinch myself when I say that out loud. I'm like, oh, that's gosh, amazing. That's real. <laughs> But I think to answer your question about kind of industrial scale versus domestic, I think the reason that industrial kind of took off is because a lot of the operations that started making biochar at scale, they actually had something, they needed to do something with all of their wood waste and their like biomass waste. And it's an effective way of producing electricity as well. So it kind of like solves two problems on an industrial scale. And of course, it reduces that overall carbon footprint. So that's kind of why that took off. And then adoption into agriculture is taking a bit longer. But you guys in the States, you're way ahead of us. The adoption of biochar in America has kind of been well documented and you guys have got plants and like 10 times the size of what we've got over in Europe. So, yeah, it's actually a whole industry to watch progress. Some companies to check out for you, I think if you want to interview someone else in biochar, a guy called Josiah Hunt, he runs Pacific Biochar. I see him on Twitter all the time. Josiah, if you're listening out there. <laughs> yeah, he, he's doing a lot there. And I think there are maybe about 10 biochar companies, but you've got to be careful around like there are certain criteria that you need to look for if you're if you're buying biochar. You've got to think, do these guys get into it from a carbon first perspective or do they just stumble that they could sell this waste product called biochar? You've got to ask them how they're actually making it. Is there smoke being produced? Are they testing the emissions? What is their feedstock? Are they testing toxicity in the biochar at the end? There are some people out there that maybe don't care that much about these things. So we've got to educate people around asking these questions to make sure they're not doing more harm than good when buying biochar. There's a group, I'm not sure if it's in the UK, and I've long meant to do a show on this, but haven't just because I haven't been able to participate yet, but it's called Make Soil. And it's an organization where if you have compostable materials, you can bring it to people who elect to have them dropped off at their property to be composted. And then that compost, I think the intention is that it will be redistributed to the contributors for them to use in their garden and sort of do this at the neighborhood scale. Have you considered doing something similar for for biochar? Is that possible? That might be a fun thing to do. Yeah, there's there's definitely a lot of scope for things like that. Because we're still a young company, we, we there's only so much we can do and, and we're focused on impact. So we initially initially started with this biochar kiln, but now we're looking at setting up the UK's biochar production infrastructure. So on a large scale, because we realized that no one was really committed to doing that in the UK and we couldn't just sit by and, and just sort of hope that someone else did it. So yeah, as eventually we will start fleshing out all these ideas. And I know of someone called like the Compost Club that do something similar in Brighton. So these models are definitely part of the future for real. Also, like one of the things that we thought about recently and like Connor mentioned earlier, we're going to start doing is have like a biochar kiln owners club, um, <laughs> kind of like a classic car owners club, but biochar kilns. And it's not um, like pop gear to me. That's literally the first thing I thought of before you. I know, that's what I thought about as well. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, this is cool. This could be such a thing. And everyone shares their tips on how they're making their biochar and videos and stuff and what they're cooking on it. And I think that'd be really nice to like build an actual community around doing your own kind of carbon capture in your back garden. So 
yeah, I think that could be step one. And then step two could be then opening it up and asking people to kind of drop off wood waste. And then in return, they can maybe pick up a bag or buy a char and make it this really nice community. Yeah, there is a there is a model in Stockholm in Sweden where they have a, an industrial size kiln and people, local citizens will just drop off their garden waste. They'll use that to make biochar. They'll then put the heat into a district heating system to heat nearby businesses and apartments. And then by giving your your wood waste or your garden waste, you can actually receive biochar in return as a thank you. They would want a grant by Bloomberg and now 15 other cities have started to replicate this. So it is starting to become part of the gardener's toolkit and you will hear about it more and more over the next few years. So how is the company doing? Like you've said that you've sold to all over the world. Like who's buying? How are you guys doing? How is it doing? Well, I think it's really fun. <laughs> um, but in terms of like a business perspective, it's actually like the last year has been amazing for us. And um, we've won some government funding from over here to develop biochar products. And our first amount of money that we won was to actually finish off the biochar kiln and make a few design amends. And we're now developing a smaller biochar kiln, kind of opening up the market a little more, making it more accessible for people who want to spend a little bit less money. So keep your eyes peeled for that. And we've also hired people. So there's went from two of us to five of us. So that's scary, but fun at the same time. Full-time people? Um, we've no, So I'm full-time, Connor's almost full-time, and then we've got three part-time members of staff. And then we have some freelance engineers that work with us as well. And we're going to be moving into our first ever Earthly HQ next month. It's on a vineyard. I'm stoked. <laughs> and yeah, we've, we're just about halfway through our largest research project to date. And that is a biochar product that's going into the construction industry. Super top secret. Once we can tell you more about it, we will. But yeah. The prospects are great. I mean, we're selling more every month and it's the customer feedback that I get is the most motivating thing. So, um, yeah, it's going really well. Thank you for asking. Yeah, yes. So people that are, are buying the kilns are the people who have been interested in biochar and didn't really want to have to make their own kiln. And, you know, what I imagined the problem to be, people are, you know, saying, you know, giving that back to us and confirming that. So. We have, we've had people who have allotments, people who have just their own vegetable growing in their garden. We've had community gardens. We've had a flower farm. We do have quite a lot of people asking for larger kilns. We don't, we're not developing larger kilns just because it's a lot more complicated process, more to go wrong. And there are other, we would rather signpost to the Exeter Retort because they they do that really well in the UK and and I think there are some other companies in the US who might cater for slightly larger biochar demand. But yeah, our, our mission really as a company is to realize the potential of biochar in the UK. We're doing this from a carbon first perspective and we'd like to demonstrate an example of multi-stakeholder capitalism where we're putting people, planet and profit and considering those in every business decision. So at the end of the year, we're going to have scores. So how well do we do on people? How well do we do on planet and profit? And obviously, we can't have people and planet impact without profit. So we're just trying to demonstrate a new way of thinking with, with business and trying to scale this under a utilized climate solution at the same time. If someone listening wanted to buy a kiln and start making it on their own, how much is it right now? And, and are you shipping 
worldwide. Sounds like you probably are. How can they get involved? Um, you can head to our website, put it in your basket, and check out. Yeah, it is. It's six hundred pounds. I'm not sure what that is in dollars, but we do have like pricing for you guys on there, so it'll appear in dollars when you go to our website. I think it's I think um, it's basically the same now. I saw the like one one pound was recently worth one dollar and one cent, and the tweet that went along with it was, "It's called soccer now." Oh. <laughs> <laughs> nice. We call that football here, but that's cool. And then yeah, we ship worldwide. So. But if the shipping doesn't pop up, it should. We genuinely do ship worldwide, but just get in touch. We have like a little chat box on our website. You'll get straight through to me and I'll answer any of your questions. Yeah, we, we do we do sell internationally. Obviously, you have to pay more for shipping than you would do if you, and you lived in the UK. And we do have plans to set up manufacturing in in the US and Australia. But for the, for the time being, if you did want to get hold of a biochar kiln, we do ship all over the world and and people find us somehow. We don't really have a marketing budget, but we've got good search results on Google and Instagram and people are somehow finding us and buying our kilns, which is great. One of the reasons I love this, even though I've been a failure to date at it, but I love the idea of it and we'll keep trying, is a lot of carbon negative activity and carbon removal is at a scale beyond the means of the average person. It's often done far away from where we live. The ways that you can participate in it is basically being a, a, a no-till regenerative gardener in your yard. I don't think there's even that many more ways to do it. Maybe planting some trees. But beyond that, it's just something that someone else does that you pay for or you work at a company that does. So I love the idea of having another way of of interacting with carbon in a helpful way. I find it to be inspiring and, and fun and also brings a nice human scale to things. So much of the show has been about crafting and what you can do on your own, mostly because I find it's an engaging way to do it. In fact, in producing this show, I could have done a biochar show without doing a kiln. Would it have been as fun and hopefully as engaging as this? Probably not. One of the visions that I have for the future is Rather than you going down to the store and just buying some compost, every gardener might one day buy a biochar kiln or buy some biochar. And then if we get that happening, it's actually so scalable. There's 18 million eco-conscious gardeners in the UK. If they're all using biochar, that's a huge amount of carbon capture. And it just doesn't cost them a lot of money or time to get involved. And I think people forget the power of community. If you can empower everyone to use biochar in their back gardens, you can make a real difference. And it doesn't just have to be about industry or big companies doing it. So that's, yeah, that was kind of our driving motivation. And, and going back to the whole, we we all love, some people love fire, some people love pyros. The, the fact that we can all get together around and, and look at this, the dancing flame and like cook some food off of it, boil a kettle, you know, make some tea, coffee and warm your hands. It's quite a community it's quite a community activity. And funnily enough, there was a design research agency that put out this put this piece where they envisaged people in the future doing their own biochar production and they called themselves the charists. And they drew up this image of people having their eco homes and they have their biochar kiln in their home, which was providing their hot water and electricity. And they were going and coppicing and sustainably harvesting feedstock to then do their own carbon capture. And they envisioned this maybe five, 10 years ago. And, and this is what, you know, it was really spooky when I found it because I was like, wow, this is actually what we're doing. So yeah, bury carbon in your back garden. 
it's not trademarked. <laughs> I think Jada is just here for the fire. It sounds like. <laughs> I mean, I very much care about reversing climate change, but I so am. So you say. So you say. <laughs> but I also really like that there is. It does feel like you're saying you can you can cook around the fire, and it has a really connective piece to it, and I really like that too. Especially in the UK, we're, we're pretty much almost globally with the fuel crisis and the cost of living crisis. You know, this could be a way of you know, if you cook one meal a week on on your kiln, you know that, and your wood chip is free. You know, as long as you're utilizing that that energy, you know, that could you know that could help with that. So, I think that could also be like an angle and a more of a motivation for people nowadays. And I'm going to try and do more of my cooking outside. And I think cooking outside is just a nicer experience as long as you have cover and it's not howling with wind and rain. This entire show, I've thought about making either a hot chip joke or a chippy joke. And I've let both I'm like, hmm, I know so much about being English and aren't I well-traveled? And I'm just going to let that let that alive for now. <laughs> Is there anything else we should talk about that you didn't get a chance or weren't asked about that you'd like to bring up or want to just drive people to your website? How do you feel? I would love to hear from someone who is keen to help us expand into the US. If you're listening and you like what we do, yeah, please get in touch. We're always looking to partner and make connections over there. But it's quite hard when you're all the way on the other side of the Atlantic. So, yeah, please do get in touch if you're keen to learn more about us and consider working with us over there. Yeah, just a little bit more about the story of, of like how we came to where we are. So this was my final year project and one of my teachers was like, oh, you should probably make some biochar and do some, do a grow test with it. You know, put some radish plants on your windowsill and just see if it does what you said it will do. I said, OK, fair enough. So I, I rang up some local plant nurseries and I was trying to get hold of some free compost being a student. And on the fourth or fifth rejection, the guy answered the phone and he was like, oh, what do you need it for? And I was like, oh, have you heard of biochar before? He was like, oh, no, that's interesting. Do you want to come around and tell me more about it? So I went and met him and turns out he grew all the plants for the three local councils. He does 100,000 plants a year. And when I showed him everything, he said, OK, I'll run your grow test for you, but we'll do it on 400 plants and we'll do it across three different ornamental bedding species. So mm-hmm. in shock, I struggled home, made as much biochar as I could. And what I did is I inoculated it. So this is a key part of, of why it's called biochar is the biology. So if you put biochar in your soil, it's like a, a battery. It will start to charge itself by stealing nutrients and water from your plant. So sometimes if you use raw biochar, uncharged biochar, without charging it, you end up having a negative impact on plant growth. So we t- made a compost tea at the time and just soaked the biochar in that. What we sell now is sort of more of a concentrated version of that to make, you don't mean you don't have to make your own compost tea. So yeah, I charged it up, took it to the plant nursery. He, we put loads of compost on the on the table. We mixed in 10% by volume and, and I planted up 400 plants and, and left and came back three weeks later to expecting to have killed all of his plants, introduced diseases and you name it. And he didn't say anything. He said, come with me. And I just walked, like, I think he was about to tell me off. And it was clear why he didn't say anything, because you could visibly see very clearly that the biochar groups were a lot bigger above ground. And then we we took out, took apart the roots. And you can see here in this in image I'm holding up on the Zoom, that and which, which you also have on our website, 
the one on the right is got much larger, thicker, hairier roots, and that's the biojar one. At the time, I didn't know what that meant, but I knew it meant something good. <laughs> and he was like, oh, I think you've sped up my plants by about a week. Can you get me a yearly supply of this stuff? And that was when we realized that no one, we didn't actually, we said, oh, we couldn't make it with our kiln. It's too small, but we'll try and buy it for you. But we realized that no one in the UK was actually set up to produce biochar, prioritizing carbon and quality and price. So that's 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 how we pivoted away from the kiln. Well, in addition to the kiln, now setting up for the biochar production infrastructure in the UK. So that was another exciting part of our journey, which really, really helped because we had photos. We had, you know, if we were to do that ourselves, that would have cost a lot of money. And, and we rely on people like that along our journey to help us. That's really fascinating. I could see it being a, a good customer education tool, could bring you more customers too, but I could also see it making your efforts more diffuse too. Running a business doing one revenue stream successfully can often be pretty challenging, but it sounds like it's overall working right now, seems to be. Yeah, it's going really well. We sell, we've sold biochar, loads of biochar on its own, just in bags, like Connor said, and it comes with the inoculum powder that you need to charge up at home. And then we also sell the kilns. And yeah, watch this space. There's going to be more cooking accessories coming out. So you can do all fancy things on top of your biochar kilns. Wow. And then next year, we'll, we should have a new range of kilns as well. So they're going to be less beautiful. I love the one at the moment. It's very beautiful. But we want one that's a bit more kind of industrial, like DIY. So we're building a range that kind of caters for that audience. And they can't spend as much money. So yeah, that's coming on the market soon. Yeah, we didn't even talk about that, but the way that I believe it's steel, right? And the way that it, mm. it changes colors as you use fire on it, it's mm. quite lovely. The patina. Yeah, I don't know. Did you get the stainless steel one or the the, the rusty Corten one? I don't think it's stainless. I think it's I think it's the other one where there's like rainbow colors that come off of it. And oh no, that is stainless. Oh, yeah, you've stainless. got okay. the purple one. Yeah, when you heat it, the rainbow appears. <laughs> It, that color will stabilize over time. So the first burn, you get this sort of chroming effect and you're actually heat treating the metal. That's that's what chroming is. But then over time, it sort of dulls to a bit more of a dark gray. And we chose stainless because stainless steel because it couldn't hopefully last a long time. We also have another variation, which is like weathering steel or corten steel, which is a, a material that rusts on purpose. It doesn't rust and disintegrate. It rusts and kind of uses that rust as a way to paint itself from further <laughs> rusting. And if you go to garden centers in the UK, I don't know about in, in the US, but we have a lot of sculptures and, and ornaments that are made from this rusty aesthetic. So oh, I've seen um, those before. Yeah. I didn't know what that was, though. So, yeah. So that's one variation. So if you did do like that rusty aesthetic, then that's that's an option. But we actually find that much many more people are buying stainless but some people like that rusty aesthetic, so we're going to keep it like that for, for the time being. Well, links are in the show notes if people would like to buy any of your products and support what you're doing. It's super fun. I'm inspired after doing this show to go back and give it another go. Although I think it's going to be wet for like six months from here on out. Today is the first day of fall. Jada, are we going to be damp for several <laughs> months at this point, I think? but Yeah, we'll have to try again in June or something. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, let us know how it goes if you try making any manure biojar data. I am very intrigued. <laughs> I will. And this inspires me to get my own kiln too. Definitely. Just just to add, like there are 
you don't have to just use biochar in the soil. Carbon is a very, it's a very versatile material. We include these leaflets in all of our products where it gives you some alternative uses for biochar. So we have, if you have a compost caddy in your, in your kitchen, so you're putting your food scraps in it, every time you empty that, it's quite an unpleasant experience because it's very stinky. It's very, it's very wet. So what we do is that every time we add a layer of food waste, we have sprinkle a bit of biochar on it. And then all over time, we're layering up food waste and biochar. And then you open the lid and you can take a deep breath in and there's, and all the methane has been absorbed by the biochar. So much more pleasant. It's, it's releasing less greenhouse gas by using biochar. And then you're kind of, all of those nutrients and all that, those juices, they're actually being absorbed into the biochar and then that goes towards inoculating and charging it. So that's one way to make the composting process, especially like if you're in a flat, a little bit more appealing. You can also use it in your cat litter. So there are some biochar cat litter products out there. It's the same way of it's using carbon filters for water and air. It can help absorb smells and toxins. You can put it in your fridge. So you can put it in your in your vegetable drawer and it's absorbing some of that ethylene gas, which is slowing down the ripening of your food. There are many, many different uses. And I'd encourage people, if they're curious, to research about how the Japanese culture, traditional culture, used charcoal. They used it to regulate humidity under their floorboards. They used it to passively filter the air in the corner of their rooms by placing architectural carbonized branches they use it to stir in their water to remove chlorine. There are many different other uses which are quite fascinating and also go a long way of increasing the demand for the carbon removal and storage. We almost made it through the entire show without you going full biochar person and having <laughs> to tell me about all of the uses of biochar. We almost made it out. We almost There's made a, it out. I only scratched scratch the surface. Maybe. No, Ross, yeah, you did make it out. There's a list 55 of them, so don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Well, links to all of those things are in the show notes. Thanks everyone for being here. That was a lot of fun. I'm glad you were able to come on the show at long last. And if you like the show, please give us a great rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It helps us a lot to get this out to more people. Send this to a friend who might be interested. And thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for listening. If you could please subscribe and give us a great rating and review on Apple Podcasts or a rating on Spotify, that'd be much appreciated. It helps us get our content out to more people. You can sign up for our newsletter at nori.com, follow us on social media, and we will catch you next time.